I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science, neuroscience for everyone. Since 2006, we have been exploring how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brains make us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 142. Today, we will be exploring the neurons that keep track of the space around us, and we will learn why they are so important. My guest is Dr. Michael Graziano, who originally appeared back in episode 108 when we discussed his previous book, Consciousness and the Social Brain. Today, we will talk about his latest book, which is called The Spaces Between Us, a story of neuroscience, evolution, and human nature. I will be back after the interview to review the key ideas along with a few brief announcements. As always, you will find complete show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or send me audio feedback via SpeakPipe, which has a mobile app, or you can go to the website speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis. If you're new to Brain Science, I hope you will visit brainsciencepodcast.com and sign up for our free newsletter so that you can get show notes automatically every month. Great to have you back on the show, Mike. I've changed the name of the show from the Brain Science Podcast to Brain Science because podcast seems redundant after all these years. (laughs) But other than that, it's the same show as when you were on before. It's hard to believe it was... Four years ago. Wow. We're talking about your new book, The Spaces Between Us, A Story of Neuroscience, Evolution, and Human Nature. And I'm curious, especially because this book is a little bit different from the last one we talked about. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it came about? Sure. Well, this is a book, the central theme of this book is personal space. And that's a theme that probably everyone's familiar with. At some level, everyone's heard of personal space, this bubble of space around us that tends to organize how we interact. But this is a topic that I have worked on for many years in the laboratory, trying to understand the brain basis, the circuits in the brain that keep track of that space around the body. And this book is an account of the whole story of personal space, how it was studied, how it was first discovered how psychologists studied it, how neuroscientists got a hold of the internal mechanisms, and also just how pervasively it affects all aspects of our lives. This is something that operates unconsciously in the background, and it affects how we interact with 
objects around us and people around us, and it shapes our development, it shapes our social behavior. Pretty much every aspect of our lives is in some way touched by this personal space or this spatial buffer around the body. And this is really what the book is about. It's that whole package. Right. One thing I was really curious about is the style that you decided to write the book in. Seems like it's much more aimed at a general audience than some of your other books. Not all. I know you've written books like that. For example, The Intelligent Movement Machine, which mentions personal space, is very technical. And this book is more, well, you do go into the technical, but you also get us into the nitty gritty of what really goes on when you're doing science, which is something I really appreciated. But I'm curious, why did you decide to write it the way that you did? Well, I think it's just a really interesting story that people should know about it and may enjoy hearing about it. It's such a huge part of our everyday lives. I think I've written plenty of academic treatments of it. I have a whole string of papers, 20 years of academic papers on this topic. And I'm not sure the world needed another academic book on this particular topic. It's a topic that's so rich in human interest and it touches on tool use. We use tools because we can wrap our spatial buffer around the tools. We can drive because we wrap our personal spatial buffer around the car. We can talk and interact with other people because we unconsciously, intuitively understand the whole social dance in terms of this interpersonal spacing. Every aspect of it has some real, genuine human interest. And I end the book with a particular story, the final chapter, which really helped bring to mind to me why this is not just an academic topic. Exactly. And we will spend some time on that bit of the story for sure, because that's really an important part of the book. But can you take us back to the beginning when you were just an undergraduate and tell us what happened? Briefly, of course. Yes, I was a naive undergrad looking for a place in science, a lab that I could work in. And I connected with a neurophysiology lab and we stumbled into this topic. I had no clue that I would end up studying personal space or anything to do with it. In fact, we aimed to study a totally unrelated brain area, this weird brain area called the claustrum, and nobody knows what it does, and it's very tiny and very hard to study. And I set out as an undergrad to study this little brain structure and missed it because it was so skinny. And we ended up studying a neighboring brain structure, which in some ways was more interesting, or at least we got more traction on it. And we began to realize we were studying neurons in the brain, individual neurons that were keeping track of objects that touch the body surface, but also objects that loom toward the body before they touch. And that was really the beginning of all this work for me. And bit by bit, we pulled on that thread and it turned into this whole system in the brain, this multi-part, many different areas of the brain hooked together into a larger system where the neurons are like radar, keeping track of how objects are moving in the space near the body, keeping track visually, keeping track by touch, keeping track by sound, and even keeping track by remembering where objects are after the room lights go off. And so this whole project got larger and larger, and then it began to connect up with the history of studying personal space and the social implications. And I began to realize that that thread we were pulling on led to something pretty extensive that went into human life at almost all levels. Right. So 
backing up, taking us through the experiments as you did in the book, in a way, takes us through a 20-year history of what was going on in neuroscience in a way, because you said you started out on those first experiments. You were working with monkeys that were asleep, correct? That's right. So we were doing experiments on the monkey brain, which is a very close model in some limited respects to the human brain. And we were studying monkeys who were anesthetized and the neurons are a little bit active under anesthesia and you can get kind of a little trickle of signal here and there in the brain. And that was the standard traditional way to study the brain for many, many decades, which is limiting because brains aren't normally anesthetized. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, it seems to me like it's almost amazing that you made this discovery of these neurons that responded to visual signals when you were working with an animal that was asleep. I mean, I realize that lots of those experiments were done that way, but it still seems pretty amazing. It sort of proves that this is something going on unconsciously, doesn't it? is something going on at a very deep level. This is not a cognitive process. This isn't cleverly figuring out where things are around your body. This is almost like a reflex. It's, it's some very deep, automatic, constantly occurring computation that's keeping track of the space around your body. And you're right, it does survive anesthesia. It's still there. But for decades, that was the standard way to study the brain. And people were very suspicious of studying awake brains because that seemed so complicated. How could you understand anything? (laughs) And so at some point, people began to realize in the, I think the anesthetized experiments totally died out in the 90s. Yeah. And people realized you kind of just have to do it in the awake state, the awake brain where all the interesting stuff was going on. And that ended up being our next step was to study these kinds of neurons in awake brains. And the neurons, of course, are easier to study and much more vivid in the awake state. Right. But there was one thing that you did, I guess, by chance that was different, that mattered. You did say these neurons that became later called peripersonal neurons, hadn't been found before. Do you think that the way that the visual objects were previously presented to the monkey made a difference? Right. So there is a tradition of studying vision by putting spots on a screen or other kinds of objects or colored shapes and so on. And people still do that, of course. And you put your screen right up close to whatever your experimental subject is, a person or a monkey or whatever other kind of animal. And you show those stimuli on the screen and you hope the brain responds to it. And the neurons that we were studying were really tuned to objects in the space near the body. And they were largely unresponsive to this stuff on a screen. And so from a very early point, we realized that we just could not do this the traditional way. And we ended up with a ping pong ball on a stick was our stimulus of choice, although pretty much any object worked. And so we ended up, we bought this big robot, this industrial robot that could move our stick around in three dimensions along pre-programmed trajectories. And we stuck that ping pong ball on the end of the stick and we can move it around. And these neurons are very sensitive to an object, a real three-dimensional object moving in the space near the body in a way that could potentially touch the body. And we definitely needed that. If we had not done that, we would have got nowhere. So 
these experiments required leaving the beaten path, I guess, with respect to experimental technique. Right. So before we talk about what happened when the monkeys were awake, if you think back on it, um, were there other key findings that you got even when you had the monkeys asleep? It is remarkable how much of the basic function of the brain is preserved under anesthesia. The brain is not awake. It's not thinking. It's not aware. It's not cognizant. And yet, really basic functions are there and you can pick up on them. And so we found essentially these neurons that each neuron was like its own little radar detecting events in a little bubble of space near a part of the body. And so one neuron might monitor space near the left cheek or the left side of the snout. And any object that enters that area visually, or if the room lights are out and it's dark, if the object comes in close enough to touch, that neuron will fire like crazy and say essentially, hey, something's in my area of space, my bubble of space. And we found neurons related to the arm where anything looming toward or touching the arm would fire off those neurons. And the arm neurons were astonishing because you could put the arm in a different place and this visual bubble that the neuron cared about would stick to the arm and move to the new place that you put the arm. And so this suggests some very complicated computations going on because, of course, vision comes in through the eyes and the eyes were still, they weren't moving. But as the arm moved, the neuron would track where objects were in relation to the arm. So some really high-level computations were going on to build up what I called kind of a bubble wrap neurons, neurons that seemed to monitor a bubble of space attached to a particular part of the body. And different neurons had different bubbles on different parts of the body, bubbles of different sizes. And in this way, the whole collection of neurons could monitor the space around the body, close to the body, even a bit farther away from the body. The neurons would be able to monitor where are objects in that space with respect to me, with respect to my limbs and my head and so on. So the basic finding is all there, even in a brain that's anesthetized. And I think you're right. What that indicates is just how deep and automatic this whole process is. Uh, This is something that's always ongoing under the surface in us and in monkeys and in other animals as well. Okay, so the timing of this would have been when these first discoveries were made approximately. Are we talking the early 90s? Yes. So the first half of the 90s, we were doing these anesthetized experiments. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you turn around to the literature and discover that the other researchers are finding similar neurons in easier to get to parts of the brain? That's right, yes. (laughs) So the areas of the brain on the surface are always easier to study. And it looked like there were some juicy spots here and there around the brain that we eventually realized are all connected to each other in this brain-spanning network interested in personal space. And so we shifted a bit. We shifted to actually a variety of different brain areas and also to the awake preparation, have our monkey awake and pressing buttons and looking around and eating snacks and doing interesting things. And then we could present the stimuli looming toward the animal and see how these neurons respond with the slight difficulty that an unanesthetized monkey is very mischievous <laughs> and they liked to eat the ping pong balls. Right. But you got a lot of great stories about the monkeys and what it's really like to work with them. 
which people should read the book. How does this work or did this work relate to the work that was done, I guess, a little bit later that involved what came to be known as mirror neurons? Was that a slightly different area where those were discovered or nearby? Or is there any relationship? Because I'm sure people will be wondering. So mirror neurons, of course, are these neurons that were originally thought to be motor control neurons related to the hand. And they responded when you shaped your hand to grab something. But they also turned out to respond when you watched someone else shape his or her hand to grab something. And so they responded to the sight of someone else doing an action, but they also responded when you performed the same action yourself. And that was the mirror neuron discovery. The mirror neuron discovery was made in a part of the brain that controls the hand and grasping with the hand. And so for a long time, people thought mirror neurons were in the hand network. It has turned out that you find mirror neurons everywhere. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Right. So it's not just the hands. We think, well, for example, there's speech-related mirroring. And so when someone else speaks, you kind of sub-vocally imagine yourself making the same sounds and your own motor neurons related to speech become a little bit active. That's mirror activity. In the case of our neurons are neurons that code personal space that have such a strong effect on defensive and protective kind of movements. I'm sure that they have mirror properties. I'm sure of it because when you see someone walk into a tree, for example, you have this strong urge to cringe and make the same kind of protective facial movement that you would do if you were the person walking into the tree, right? We all do that. We look at someone getting hurt and we cringe and we make the kind of gesture that this particular neural system in the brain would drive us to make. So I'm sure that these have something to do with mirror neurons. I think it just hasn't been studied with respect to these neurons. Mm -hmm. But I think everything in the brain is mirrored. If you see someone else perform some action, then you simulate it in your own brain in whatever the relevant system is. So certainly mirror activity is probably relevant to it, but not yet tested. Right. And one of the other things that strikes me about this whole subject is the fact that even the very first peripersonal neurons that you found, that was in the putamen of the basal ganglia. That was a movement area or thought to be a movement area. That's right. And later on, a lot of those other areas were thought to be movement areas. Kind of challenges the traditional idea that the brain is divided into motor and sensory. It looks, the more and more we learn, it looks like it's all not mixed together randomly, but definitely mixed together. That's right. There's really no such thing as a pure motor end to the system. The sensory information is flowing into the motor control systems, and they're full of sensory information. They're helping to integrate it, helping to process it. And so as far as you go, you find sensory-related activity. And here's this system that is incredibly sensitive to objects near the body, the sensory to the perception of objects near the body. And yet, when that system becomes active enough, it starts influencing movement and shaping our movements away or creating defensive movements or protective movements and so on. So it's, it is definitely both a sensory system and a motor system. So by studying monkeys, which you spent decades doing, what are the kinds of things you can learn from monkeys? This is kind of a backing up into a more basic question of what things would we use monkeys for and what things would they be poor choices for studying? 
well, I'm a bit out of the loop with respect to the monkey research since it's been so long since I've done that. Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that that whole field has moved on in all kinds of interesting ways. And so I'll speak to what the state was when I did that work. Okay. And my sense is that monkeys are very similar in their visual systems to people. They're very similar in their tactile systems and in their motor control systems, all these low-level systems. You can learn an enormous amount. And much of what we know about the human brain, which is what I now study, the human brain, much of what we know rests on earlier work on monkeys. And it's very relevant if you stick to those low-level systems. But when you start running into trouble when you get into higher-level cognition, problem-solving into communication, actually you run into trouble with the auditory system because humans are really unusual primates. We have really good auditory systems because we're linguistic. And most other primates seem to have relatively impoverished auditory systems in comparison. So there are things that you cannot study in non-human animals if you want to understand the human brain. There are ways in which you just have to study a human brain. But there are also really basic, really fundamental, simpler systems that are present in other primates and probably other animals outside the primate family. Yeah, I was really surprised when I read in your book that the monkeys in your lab couldn't learn to respond to their names when they were spoken. That's right, yeah. So that kind of tells you something. I was wondering, is that true for chimpanzees too? Do you know? My understanding is chimps are also not terribly auditory animals. Mm -hmm. Then one of the reasons why you can teach them sign language is because they have their own natural gestural communication system. So they make gestures that mean different things and they do that in the wild. And that's very visual. It's very motor control and visual. That's the domain in which they communicate with each other. They do have some vocal sounds that mean a variety of different things, but nothing like the range of people. So as people, we have to distinguish between really fine shades of different sounds. And I think chimps and other kinds of primates are just not like that. So your pet dog, for example, will be much better at responding to human language. Well, that's exactly who I was thinking of. He does know his name, or at least that I call him, I mean him when I say a certain word, whether he knows it as a name or not, we could debate. Right. So when you got to the awake monkeys, and you had already made most of the basic discoveries with the anesthetized monkeys, what would you say would be, but then what, another 10 years with awake monkeys, what's the most important things that came out of working with the awake monkeys? Well, we discovered a lot of really astonishing, cute properties of these neurons in the system of the brain that's monitoring the space around the body. We certainly found all kinds of cute properties like the, we called them the, well, I guess the kissing in the dark cells. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they ended up being called neurons that keep track, not only of the sight of an object near your face, but you turn the room lights off and the neuron keeps firing away as though it's saying, hey, there's still something near my face. And you can sneak the object away in the dark, but the neuron's still firing away saying, ah, it's still there, it's still there. And then you turn the room lights on and suddenly the neuron goes silent as though it's saying, oops, sorry, false alarm, it's gone now. So we had a whole range of really cool discoveries, but probably the most important part, the most important discovery was the real functional use of these neurons when they get revved up and it's possible to rev these neurons up artificially to stimulate them. When you stimulate them, you produce motor output and the motor output can be very, very complicated, very, very specific. 
And so we were finally able to figure out exactly what these neurons are probably there for. They guide your movement away from nearby objects. They keep you safe. They, in extreme form, when they get extremely activated, they produce flinching movements or withdrawal movements. But even at a subtle level of activity, these neurons are shaping your behavior so that you walk through a doorway and you don't hit your shoulder on the edge of the doorway. You don't even think about it. Well, that's this system working in the background. These neurons nudging your movements constantly, keeping that safety buffer around your body. And that discovery came from studying the actual behavior coming out of the awake brain while we studied these neurons. I want to take a few moments to thank everyone who supports brain science financially via premium subscription, Patreon, or direct donations. Your support is essential because although this show started as a hobby, since my husband died in 2015, the income from brain science has become an important part of my budget. Without your support, I will not be able to devote the necessary time and energy to continuing to create new content. If you'd like to learn more about how you can help, please go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. So one of the things, Mike, that I really appreciated about this book is the candid way you explained or described how humans do science and make mistakes. And you talked about how for a while you really were convinced that these neurons were involved in many different kinds of motor activity. And we now know that it's a defensive kind of motor activity, but that wasn't what you thought early on. Can you talk about something that, as I was rereading that part and I was thinking about the clue, which was the responses, the differing responses of the neurons to the apple versus the plastic snake. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that and what happened? Sure. So you're right. We thought these neurons were keeping track of the location of objects so that you could do anything you want with respect to those objects. You could reach out and grab it. You could move away from it. You could kick it, whatever you wanted. We thought these neurons were generalists. Yet the behavior of the neurons never quite measured up to that expectation. And we kept puzzling ourselves. We trained monkeys to reach out and touch buttons, but the neurons would go silent during the reaching part of the task. And we thought that's weird. So we couldn't wrap our minds around that. And so we just didn't know what to make of that. And then there was a type of neuron, we called them biblical cells. We always had to come up with these funny names for these cells. They were called biblical cells because it involved a plastic apple and a plastic snake. And what we discovered was you find a neuron in these crucial brain areas and and the neuron might respond as an object looms toward the face. And so it's a neuron monitoring a bubble of space around the face. Well, we thought, great, let's instead of a ping pong ball on a stick, let's put that plastic apple on a stick. He'll be really attentive to the apple and maybe the response will get bigger. And so we tried that and the response went away. The neuron disappeared. We thought that's really weird. That neuron is not interested. The monkey's interested in the apple. Neuron's not. And we tried another stimulus we thought the monkey might pay attention to, and that was a plastic snake. Now, these monkeys had no experience with snakes. They grew up in captivity, but supposedly monkeys are nervous about snakes, congenitally so. And I don't really know if that's true, but we tried it. And the monkey certainly was a little suspicious of this weird snake-looking object. And we 
had that stimulus loom in toward the monkey. Then the neuron went crazy. It fired more than ever before. And we couldn't really wrap our minds around that. We found a bunch of these so-called biblical cells that really responded well to the snake and not the apple. It never went the other way around. And it really wasn't until later that we finally realized these cells are not generalists. They are really part of a system for buffering and protecting the body. And the thing about an apple is if you want to eat it, you got to drop those defensive shields and let the apple in so that you can get it to your mouth and eat it. And that's why these cells were shutting off. But if you see something that makes you suspicious that you don't really want near you, like that weird looking plastic snake, that's when these cells become more active. And by their activity, they influence your movements and make you more likely to back away or put your hand up to block or turn away and so on. So that really should have been a clue to us. It, it took us a lot longer, though. It took us many years, three or four years, actually, to nail down, oops, these cells are not generalists. They're really into this particular protective function. So then you spend some time talking about the brain stimulation studies, which eventually provided the big clue you needed to figure this out. But could you talk a little bit about how the way you did the stimulation studies was different from the way they had been done before and which is probably why you got the results you did and how that came about. Right. Stimulation is a time-honored method, traditional method of studying the brain. It's been done in people. It's been done in every imaginable animal. It's still being done all the time. And the method is to stimulate, gently tickle a very tiny number of neurons in one minute spot in the brain and then try to observe what results from that. And then you can try to make some inferences about the function of those neurons that you've tickled. And that's the basic technique. It's been around since 1870. And different parts of the brain develop different traditions in the scientific world. So there were parts of the brain where stimulation was done in a particular way. And to give you one example, or rather a sensational example, there's a structure deep in the brain called the hypothalamus. And if you stimulate it, you can get spectacular behaviors that look like emotion or motivation. So you stimulate one spot and the person or whatever animal you're studying will act hungry and start eating. And you stimulate another spot and the person will act angry and so on. The emotions are on tap in this little area in the base of the brain. And it's quite astonishing. And this has been known for about 100 years. And this area of the brain, the hypothalamus, has been studied traditionally by stimulating for maybe a minute or a half a minute at a time, because you got to have a long enough time to see what emotional behavior emerges. Well, that's the tradition there. There's a different tradition in the motor control part of the brain, the motor cortex. That tradition built up totally independently, where people were stimulating for maybe 10 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds. You zap one spot on the cortex, and you try to see which muscles twitch on the body and you try to map out the muscles onto the cortex. And that was the traditional method there. And so nobody in their right mind ever would have stimulated for longer than about 20 milliseconds in this motor system. And we were the ones who weren't in our right minds, I guess. And we stimulated for longer. We stimulated for actually about a second, half a second to a second in that time range. It's about the time range over which an, an animal or a person reaches or grasps but it's 50 times longer or 100 times longer than people had been studying before. And so when we applied that stimulation to this 
part of the brain, these crazily complex movements were emerging and they were totally unexpected to us. So we stimulate one spot and the hand, the animal's hand closes in a perfect little grip and it turns to face the mouth and then it comes up to the mouth and the mouth opens and all of these things happen at the same time in a coordinated way by tickling neurons in one particular spot in the cortex or you stimulate another spot and the hand reaches out and opens up as though grasping something in distant space and so on. All these, this kind of cornucopia of movements, of complex movements straight out of the normal repertoire, uh, the normal everyday repertoire of movements could be evoked by stimulating these neurons, tickling neurons here and there in these specific spots in the motor cortex. And that was completely astonishing to us and really kind of rewrote the whole concept of the map of movements in the cortex. So that was a much larger, in a sense, a much larger project. Right. But one part of it involved these particular neurons that code the space around the body. And that's where we discovered those particular neurons seem to emphasize protection of the body surface, blocking movements, cringing movements, turning away, and so on. Right. And you mentioned, I just want to make sure that we didn't leave this out, because I'm pretty sure you did mention this, but you did mention that that space around us can incorporate, you alluded to this at the beginning, it can incorporate tools. And wasn't the first experiment that sort of showed this was done with a monkey, right? And the rake? That's right. So the neuroscientist Iriki did a brilliant study, which is still a classic study now, that he trained monkeys to use a hand tool. They don't normally do that, but you can train them. And they would use a hand rake to reach out and scoop food towards them across a table. And then he studied these neurons that code the space around the body and found that when the monkey was using his rake, these neurons would stretch the area of space that they would represent as though the bubble of space was being stretched not just around the arm, but around this tool. So it would extend farther away from the body. And then when the monkey wasn't using the tool, the visual area that the neuron was interested in would shrink back again around the arm. And this was really the first data to show that when we use tools, we can use them because we treat them like an extension of the body. And part of that is to take the buffer space around the body and stretch it around that tool. So the buffer space is really important. When you move your arm around, you think about sitting at your desk and your desk is cluttered and it's full of all kinds of things and your coffee cup and a stapler and you move your hand here and there and you manage not to bump into things. In fact, you're quite, usually most people are quite deft about moving their hands and they don't crash into this or that and it's all automatic. We don't injure our hands against the sharp edge of the desk. And we do that because we have this automatic unconscious buffer space wrapped around our hands. And that's what allows us to use the hand as an effective tool. So now imagine you're holding a tool that extends your hand. How do you use that tool? How do you use a hammer properly? How do you use a knife or a fork properly? Well, a huge part of that, not all of it, but a huge part of it is extending that buffer zone so that you don't accidentally crash into everything that you don't want to hit. And that's what allows for a really fine coordination in using a tool, a handheld tool. So this personal space mechanism turns out to be crucial, probably important in some deep evolutionary sense at the time that people were evolving their tool use, first developing stone tool technology. 
I'm not sure that could ever have happened without this neural mechanism for monitoring the space around the body and adjusting our movements accordingly. So these neurons are very important in some deep sense in tool use. It's very fascinating how plastic that receptive field is. I mean, like in the monkeys, they got it quickly and it went away very quickly. Yes. Of course, we experience this all the time when we're using tools or or tennis rackets or bats or anything that we are using in our hands for it to eat. We just take it for granted. That's right. That's, to me, the most fascinating property of this whole system of personal space is that we take it for granted, but it's necessary for almost everything we do. And so your story has an ironic twist. And you spent all this time studying this, and then what happened? The final chapter of my book covers this part of the story. My son ended up having a developmental difficulty called dyspraxia. And dyspraxia is quite common. Estimates are about one in 20 children have dyspraxia. Probably one child in every classroom on average has dyspraxia. And dyspraxia is basically a difficulty in coordinating movement, sometimes called the clumsy child syndrome. And it can be no big deal if you treat it properly and child goes through physical therapy and trains up on how to do various kinds of skills and there's no big deal about it, but it can also be quite a disaster. And in the case of my son for a long time, it really was very difficult. His particular case of dyspraxia, I think different children have different cases, different mixtures of symptoms. His particular case seemed particularly bound to his personal space, the space around his body. That seemed to be where the difficulty lay. And I suspect there may be a subcategory of dyspraxia that is of this nature, that what goes wrong is personal space. So he had trouble with crashing into things, with knocking over the milk glass, with bumping into people, tripping into furniture, a very poor sense of the protective personal space around his body. But as he began to grow up, around the age of five or six is when we really began to notice these problems. We began to see just how pervasive personal space is. And it's shocking when you see it in this form. And it's very disturbing too, of course. But if you have trouble with tool use, then it's very hard to learn how to write because the space around the pen is all disorganized and the space on the page is disorganized to your eyes. It's very hard to learn how to use a knife and fork. Even something like reading is difficult because you have to hold a book and coordinate the book and your eyes. And if your sense of the space near your body is a little disorganized, that is very difficult. And so we saw that whole development. But what we really saw was the incredible social implications of personal space. Because in the end, in people, the most important, the most telling or the most human attribute of personal space is the social aspect of it. We use it. We use it to help organize the social dance. We use it to adjust our behavior toward other people. And if your sense of personal space is not quite right, people don't know what's wrong. They can't quite put their finger on it, but they don't like it. And it disturbs them. And this is exactly what happened to my son in first grade. The teachers felt there was something wrong here. He was standing too close to people online, leaning against people in story time on the floor. He would sort of flop around and bonk into people. And he had a whole set of behaviors that disturbed them. They actually kicked him out of school. And this was 
quite a disaster for us. We ended up going all the way to the court system and we had all our panel of experts and we explained what was going on and we ended up winning that court case and getting our son back into school again. And he needed help. He needed specialized help. These people in school were so socially freaked out. They thought there was something wrong with him socially. They thought he was assaultive toward other children because he was bumping into people. But once the experts really got on board and followed and tracked and helped him, it was clear he had this movement difficulty and he needed this very specialized movement therapy to help him build up his sense of personal space. And that went brilliantly. I mean, he's done absolutely brilliantly. You would have no concept. If you looked at him now, you'd think, what, this totally normal kid just a few years later. But the irony was that I had spent 20 years studying personal space and it took quite a long time to realize that that's what was going wrong here right in front of me, right in front of my own eyes in the real world. You know, you study these things in an academic sense and then you see them in real life and you realize that this is not an academic topic. This is something that affects every bit of everyday life from holding tools to not bumping and crashing into things to social interaction and being kind of socially ostracized because you look awkward. So that was quite a sobering moment. I think as I put it, it was sort of like if I had spent 20 years studying the skeletal remains of tigers in the lab, and then I went into the jungle and saw an actual tiger. And my thought was, oh my God, now what do I do? I mean, it's really different in real life. It's vivid and it's real. And you really realize just how pervasive personal space is in shaping all these different aspects of our lives. So given the very personal way that you wrote this book, do you anticipate that you might be more involved in promoting it than you might be a more academic text? Or does that affect anything from your point of view now that the book's out? Do you have any special plans? I think it's just a really interesting story all around both the general aspects of personal space and also the more personal aspects. I think there's probably a lot of people out there with children who have dyspraxia, who have exactly the same thing my son had, who are thinking to themselves, oh, wow, that's, that's what we went through. I'd like to learn more about that. But I think there's also a lot of people out there who have no particular problem with personal space, but it's still really interesting to know here's this thing that we all take for granted that runs under the surface that has such a huge role in our lives. And I just think it's a neat story. And that's why I wrote the book in the first place. So I would certainly love to see it get out there, that story get out there. Yeah, I think this book is a good example of the fact that understanding some basic neuroscience is important, can be important to people's lives. I mean, if your teachers had had even some basic knowledge that you assume they're supposed to have about child development, it doesn't seem like they should have accused him of the things they accused him of. That's right. But for a while, it's very easy to get vengeful mm -hmm. when something goes wrong. And your teachers behave in ways they shouldn't. And for a while, of course, I was quite angry at that treatment of my son because any actual expert who looked at the situation saw immediately what was going on and what needed to go on. And there was no excuse for making those errors. But over time, I have come to realize that the enemy is ignorance. The real enemy is ignorance. And that's why it's important to write a book like this. Teachers are not the enemy <laughs> at right. all. Ignorance is the enemy. Exactly. So the last time you were on the show, I asked you the question that I always ask people at the end of the interview, which is advice for students. Want to take another crack at it? 
I'm curious to see whether your advice has changed since the last time we talked. Uh-huh. Do you want me to read you what you said last time just so that you're not blindsided? <laughs> if you're curious, I'll read it to you. I have it to you just because I thought you might be curious to know what you said before. You want to just tell me straight without being prejudiced by previous comments? Exactly. You can tell. I'm very curious. You tell me afterwards. Okay, I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> and I'll find out how inconsistent I am. I mean, my advice is, I think my advice has always been, if you're interested in science, be interested in the science itself. The purpose of science is discovery. It's discovering fundamental new insight. And if that excites you, if that interests you, then you may be a good scientist. That may lead to a good scientific career. But always keep that in mind that the important thing is discovery. And often discovering new insight means steering away from the obvious path toward career success. Because there's a lot of groupthink in science. And one of the ways that you can gain some kind of success is by trying to flatter the expectations of your colleagues, giving them what you think they will admire or what you think they will support. And that can be quite different from figuring out what's likely to be true about the world. In fact, often when you try to gain real insight, real fundamental new insight, you are kind of by definition stepping on everyone's preconceived comfortable notions. And so you kind of get people a bit riled up and you have to just be prepared for that. You have to be prepared. If you really want to understand scientifically, understand some aspect of the world, in my case, the brain or the mind, then don't try to please your colleagues. Try to figure out what's actually true. That would be my advice. That's at least what I have always tried to do is to steer toward scientific insight rather than scientific acceptance or, or group think. Well, you're very consistent. I'll read you what you said last time. Aha. Uh-huh. My advice for young scientists and old scientists and all scientists, pursue insight. I think there's a lot of pressure to pursue acceptance and career and promotion and status and so on. In order to do that, you very often have to avoid new ideas. It is very hard to convince people of new ideas. There is no better way to get yourself stigmatized in the scientific community than to start proposing new ideas. But really, the purpose of science is insight, gaining new insights. And so, that would be my advice. If it's really science you're interested in, one should aim for exactly that, scientific insight. Keep that in mind as the goal because that's the most satisfying and the most fascinating part of the whole process. I think you're you're still on the same page. I think so. I think I said it better last time, though. (laughs) No, no, you didn't. I think you supplemented. There was a, you know, sort of little different taste to it that I think comes from a little bit more experience. But one of the things, Mike, I really appreciated about this book was the fact that as you're telling the story, you point out the points where it was necessary to, as you said at one point, go off the rails. And you also pointed out the points where you went wrong because you were stuck on a particular interpretation. So in my mind, this is the perfect book for somebody to read, get a sense of how science is really done by real people when it's done well. So I appreciate that you have written this book, and I will do everything I can to share it with others. Excellent. Thank you for that. 
You're welcome. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we close? I don't think so. We covered quite a bit of ground there. Absolutely. Okay, well, thanks again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And who knows how long it'll be before the next time we talk. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Right. I want to thank Dr. Michael Graziano for returning to Brain Science to discuss his new book, The Spaces Between Us, A Story of Neuroscience, Evolution, and Human Nature. This book certainly demonstrates the importance of accurate, basic neuroscientific knowledge. So let's review a few key ideas. What are peripersonal neurons? They are multimodal neurons that have been found in at least three different motor areas of the brain. Multimodal means that they respond to different kinds of sensory input, such as touch and vision and sometimes auditory. It's important to realize that the discovery of multimodal neurons was a big deal 20-25 years ago. Before that, it was assumed that sensory and motor neurons were strictly segregated. But the discovery of the famous mirror neurons probably opened the way for appreciating that there are sensory neurons in all kinds of unexpected places. Things are much more complex than we ever imagined. The peripersonal neurons appear to monitor the space immediately adjacent to our bodies, especially around our face and upper extremities. Dr. Graziano describes their receptive fields as being like bubble wrap. Through a wide variety of clever experiments, his team uncovered many of the key features of these neurons. One was that any single neuron has a receptive field that's fixed to a particular area of the body. This means that its receptive field moves if that body part moves. In monkey experiments, they showed that even when the monkey's eyes were fixed, the field moved with the body part. Another neuroscientist, Atushi Yuriki, and his colleagues in Japan back in 1996, showed that the receptive field can be expanded by tool use. In fact, the field appears to be quite plastic since it shrinks back when the tool is no longer in use. It seems straightforward to extrapolate that these peripersonal neurons are essential for tool use. But, as Dr. Graziano commented, they are also required for many things that we take for granted. Besides things like using a fork or learning to write, peripersonal space is vital to social interaction. We must know where our body is in order to respect the space of others and to be able to interact in an acceptable manner. Once they had a good idea about the receptive fields for the peripersonal neurons, Dr. Graziano's team tried to find out what their motor function was, but they were stymied until they moved on to stimulation experiments. Those experiments revealed that when stimulated, these neurons participate in stereotypical defensive maneuvers, such as ducking the head. It's always nice to have a former guest back on the show, but I have to say that I don't think that this interview did justice to Dr. Graziano's new book, The Spaces Between Us, This book is very different in style from his last book. Dr. Graziano wants to share this topic with non-scientists, and I feel he does this with appealing candor. In describing two decades of his life as a neuroscientist, he takes us through the ups and downs, including the mistakes and blind alleys that characterize the way science is really done 
by human beings. In sharing the story of his son, which is a very non-academic thing to do, he demonstrates that these peripersonal neurons operate outside our conscious awareness, but they influence our daily lives in countless ways. He gave several examples, but let's consider something else most of us do throughout the day. Even if you don't have to use a computer keyboard or a mouse, you probably use a smartphone. Imagine trying to do this if you can't tell where your fingers are. When you reach for the phone in the dark, you are using something like those kissing-in-the-dark neurons that he described. But to me, this book shares something more than just the importance of peripersonal neurons. I was struck by the importance of experimental design. For example, why did Dr. Graziano find these peripersonal neurons when no one else had? He told us that his first discovery was actually by chance when his electrodes missed the tiny target he had hoped to explore. But then when he started studying a more accessible region of the brain, he was using a 3D visual object, i.e. a ping pong ball, rather than projecting objects onto a screen. This was important because the peripersonal neurons are monitoring the space near the body. They are never going to be stimulated by something projected on a screen. Then there was increasing the stimulation time, which uncovered a wide variety of stereotypical movements, including the defensive movements of the peripersonal neurons. This is why I think it's important to understand the evidence behind any neuroscientific principle that one learns. We typically assume advances in scientific understanding rely on continually evolving technologies, but that is not entirely true. Going back to Galileo, it has always been the well-designed experiment that led the way to new thinking. I highly recommend Dr. Graziano's new book, The Spaces Between Us, to anyone who enjoys reading about how science is really done. If you're listening on the free Brain Science mobile app, be sure to check out the extras for this episode for Dr. Graziano's original interview, which was 108. To close with a few brief announcements. I usually forget to share when I'm a guest on another podcast, but I want to mention that I was recently on the STEM Diversity Podcast with Victor Wu. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. And as you might guess from the name of the show, Victor's goal is to interview a wide variety of people working in these areas so that young people will be inspired. This is episode 24 of the STEM Diversity Podcast, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes at brainsciencepodcast.com. Just a brief word about the Australia trip, which I had announced last month is being moved to 2019. The goal now is to recruit about 16 listeners to travel with me to Australia in 2019, probably late May or early June. If you are interested in coming on this trip, please send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. For those of you who live in Australia, I'm going to be trying to set up some activities while I'm there, including hopefully maybe a speaking engagement, and especially I want to get at least one or two meetups, hopefully in Sydney and Melbourne. So if you live in Australia and you want to be part of the trip, even though you wouldn't necessarily want to be in the little travel group, you should also write to me. I should have some more details of the itinerary in the next couple of months, and I'll announce that on the show. 
I want to thank everyone who has been stepping up to help support my work in 2018. I will need to continue to remind you about this every month, as I really do need the income from this show as a part of my budget. The usual methods for supporting brain science are via premium subscription, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash docartemis, and direct donations via PayPal. You can learn more by going to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. Of course, if you can't afford to support the show financially, please do continue to share it with others. I am looking into something that I hope will be an effective alternative to advertising, and that is underwriting, which is the main method used by local public radio. I will be posting details on the website soon, but if you are interested in this option, please send me an email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to talking with you again next month. Brain Science with Dr. Ginger Campbell is copyright 2018 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this show to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.